those back who are joining us on live stream. Glad to have you back. And uh, we've been this year in a series of messages on the scripture for the year for us, which has been Acts 2, verse 42, which talks about this new band of Christ followers on the day of Pentecost, these 3,000 brand new believers born again. It says about them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Uh, and, And we've been in that verse this year. We spent the first four weeks on prayer, looking what it means to be devoted to prayer. We've been the last four weeks looking at what it means to be devoted to the fellowship. And we've said a number of times through these weeks that fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which means to share in common. Okay, but it's not just share as in, you know, when Marlene says, honey, you need to share the cheesecake with the rest of the family. It's not just share like that. It's shared as in to participate in, close association with, to share life. Think less of sharing a contact on your cell phone, on your iPhone, you know, go to contact, share, and it takes you three seconds and it costs you nothing. That's not the kind of, that's not what koinonia is. Koinonia is more like our brother that we talked about who's going to be going to a a hard place and he's going to be taking medicines to trade for humans and they're going to share life in the midst of a heated battle. That's more what koinonia is. And we've said over the course of these weeks that there's a number of marks that uh, have marked the early church fellowship. It was a generous fellowship. They were giving to one another. It was a unified fellowship. They were all together. It was a growing fellowship. The text says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It was a powerful fellowship. The power of the Holy Spirit was not just talked about but experienced and demonstrated And it was a persevering fellowship because wherever the wind of the Spirit moves, there will be waves of resistance. You can be sure of that. And there was in the book of Acts. There were these waves of resistance and the power of the Spirit was moving and they persevered. In fact, part of the power of the Spirit is the ability to persevere. And today I want to add one more attribute to our list about the early church fellowship. And it is this. The early church fellowship was a happy fellowship. Now, I, I'm going to, you know, we, we had a kind of a spirit of celebration earlier. I'm going to need that to continue while we're preaching, all right? All right. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. When I say they were a happy fellowship, I do not mean what the world means when they say happy. If our definition of happiness takes its bearings from secular society as merely being, you know, experiencing momentary, superficial, comfort-based, suffering-free, pleasant feelings where you feel yummy in your tummy, then that's not what the early church was or what we should be. If, however, we take our cue from Scripture about what ultimate happiness is, And you find that if you go to the scripture, more often the word happiness is actually translated by a number of other English words like these, joy, blessed. In fact, the word blessed in Greek means happy, exultation, delight, gladness, or pleasure. In fact, if you just take those English words and you just run a study on it, those occur in the Bible 2,700 times. And often their meanings overlap as they talk about a deep happiness, a deep joy that goes beyond circumstance. And if that's what you mean by happiness, then you see quite clearly that's what the early church had. In fact, in this text, in in, in Acts chapter 2, it says, verse 46, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread, which is what we're going to do this afternoon, in their homes and ate together with glad 
heart. And the, and the word in Greek there is actually exultation. It means exuberant joy. It actually means to leap with joy. In other words, it wasn't a somber time together. Meaning, when we break bread out there in the gym today, there should be a lot of laughter. There should be some joy out there. This is how they were. And it says they had glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved because who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Now, this shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because the theme of joy or ultimate happiness in God runs right through Luke's gospel, which is volume one of Luke's work, right into seamlessly the book of Acts, which is volume two. So, for example, in, in Luke, in the very first chapter, an angel appears to Zechariah. You're going to have a son. It's going to be John. And here's what he says, verse 14. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Very same chapter, an angel has appeared to Mary, and then Mary has talked to Elizabeth, and afterwards she sings a song. We call it the Magnificat, because in Latin, that's the first word is Magnificat. She says this, verse 46 and 47, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In the very next chapter, when an angel appears to some shepherds to make the announcement that Jesus has been born, the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So whatever else the good news is about, it is good news of great joy. In other words, one of the fruits of the gospel is joy. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 that that when we have persecution, we should do what? Verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because I used to be able to jump way higher, by the way. (laughs) Do you remember that? Do you all remember when I could? I used to leap, right? Remember that? Remember that? He said, leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. In other words, according to Jesus, man, if you get persecuted for him, you ought to celebrate. I'd be filled with joy. Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out the 72, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So joy should be the result of ministry, by the way. Verse 21, it says, at that time, Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was full of joy. Hebrews 1 verse 9, and I can't stay away from Hebrews because I'm reading it right now because we're going to preach through it later in the year. Hebrews 1 9 says, God has set you above your companions. How? By anointing you with the oil of joy. And we know from other texts that not only was Jesus full of joy, but he wanted his followers to be full of joy. John 15 verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you that your joy might be complete. Very next chapter, John 16, verse 20, you will grieve. He was talking about his death. He's going to die. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Because basically what he's saying is, I'm coming back. I'm going to rise from the dead. And he says, I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In other words, when I rise from the dead, you're going to have not just a joy, you're going to have a steadfast joy. You're going to have a secure joy. You're going to have a unstealable joy. I don't even know if unstealable is a word. I made it. It means cannot be stolen. See, according to Jesus, you can't take my joy. You can't take my joy. He says, no one will take away your joy. 
After the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples. He then ascends into heaven. After he's ascended into heaven, Luke 24, verse 52, then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So that when we arrive in the book of Acts at the birth of the church, we're not surprised to see joy permeating the fellowship even when they were being persecuted. Chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Because they had been counted worthy to suffer, for, uh, worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Get the picture here, just for context. They had just been flogged. Now, I kind of, this is one of those weeks where, you know, as you're doing your research, sometimes it takes you down a rabbit hole. And, and I went down the rabbit hole of what flogging was in the first century, and I read different stuff about that. Uh, but I'm not going to explain it to you because it's first Sunday of the month and the children are in here. But I will say this, one quote from one of the articles I read was that flogging was one of the most inhumane things one person could do to another. So they're flogged, and what do they do? You think, man, oh, this is a terrible day, this is a bad day. No, no, they get flogged, and what do they do? They're rejoicing. Apparently, Jesus' prophecy that no one could take away your joy came true. Acts chapter 8, Philip is going to Samaria, and there's miracles, supernatural miracles are happening. The text says there's exorcisms, you know, the demons are being cast out. There are people who are crippled, who are walking. There are paralytics who are walking. And it says, Acts chapter 8, verse 8, so there was great joy in that city. Well, I guess so. <laughs> Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in jail. After having been stripped and beaten and flogged, they're sitting there, bleeding in prison, it's midnight, and what are they doing? They're singing. They're sing I what were they singing? I don't know. I mean, maybe they made up a song, you know, I'm in prison and I'm singing. I don't know. <laughs> Probably singing about Jesus or maybe singing one of the Psalms because that was the songbook of the early church. Maybe they're, they're singing, you know, I don't know. Psalm 103, forget not all of his benefits. Heals all your disease. I don't know. But they're singing. And then what happens? An earthquake comes. The gates pop open. You know, the chains fall off. The jailer, who's been taking a cat nap, because that's what you do, you know, in the first century, if you're a Roman jailer, he wakes up. He's like, oh, no, I'm going to die. He's going to kill himself. Paul stops him. And he says, so what should I do to be saved? <laughs> Verse 34 of Acts 16, the jailer was filled with joy. Because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Listen, joy should be the fruit of believing in God. And on and on throughout the New Testament. I don't have time. I'm not going to go through the whole New Testament. You can thank me for that later. But the early church experienced wonderful moves of the Holy Spirit and horrible persecution. And all of it was characterized by joy. I wonder. I wonder if there might be someone here today who you hear that and you sense a lack of joy in your own life. Maybe, I just wonder, I just wonder if there's someone here who would say, I, I, I need that. I, 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 my life is characterized by a lot of things, but joy isn't one of them. And maybe you would say, look, I, I, I am totally controlled by my circumstances. When things are going good, I'm up. When there's challenges and there's persecution, uh, I'm down. And there's no joy. If that's you, I have no condemnation for you today. Because I get it. I, I, I've, I've spent a, actually a, a big portion of my life being just like that. I get it. I don't have any condemnation, but I do have an invitation. 
And the invitation is to a life transformed by the gospel, full of the spirit in the kingdom of God. Because as we're about to learn, joy, which is ultimate happiness in God, is a result of the gospel, number one. Right? Jesus said in Luke 10, don't rejoice that the demons submit you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. David, the psalmist, in his great psalm of repentance in Psalm 51, he said, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. So joy should be the result of salvation. It's a result of the gospel. It's also a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. We preached through Galatians last year. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's also part of being in the kingdom. Uh, Romans 14, verse 17 says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So as I think about this, and I think this is very important, the early church understood some things, and those things produced joy in them. See, I don't think it was that the early church was trying to work up joy in themselves. You know, I don't think Peter saw some people who were down, and he said, I'm going to preach a sermon on being happy in God. You should be happy in God. And then they went, okay, let's try really hard. Okay, we just squeezed it out. I don't think that's how it happened. I think it was the natural result of the gospel, the spirit, and the kingdom in them. They believed some things. And those beliefs produced joy in them, even in dire circumstances. And I want to say this. I think that if we believe those same things, because we got the same Holy Spirit they had, we got the same God. Do we, do we or do we not serve the same God of the early church? And so I believe that if we believe the same things they believed and we allow it to work in us, I don't mean intellectually giving assent to something, although that starts with that. I mean believing it deep down. I believe those same truths will produce the same joy that they did in the early church. And so I just want to go through just a few of these things that they believe that I think we need to believe and know if we're going to just, if joy is going to be produced in us and through us so that the world sees it. How many of you know, you know, you know, sinners, they, <laughs> they need to know they're sinners and they also need to know that there is happiness in God. And that everything else they're looking to find happiness in is hollow. They need to know that. But they ain't going to know that unless they see some joy in us. Right, so we're going to go through, and, and I just want to say, you know, sometimes I'm in preacher mode, okay, so we're preaching, and that's fun, and I, I have more fun preaching, but, I, but today i got to be in teacher mode, because I, we need to, I need to teach some, some ideas, and some of these, you're going to be like, yeah, of course, and others, you're going to be like, wait, are you sure about that? And if you just let it in, it will produce joy in you, all right, so here's some of, some of the things the early church believed that we should believe that will produce in us that kind of joy. Number one. God is happy. I know for some of you, you're like, that's a weird thought. It's kind of a foreign idea. You know, some of you are worse than that, though. You have an allergic reaction to that sentence. Or nervous twitch because of it. Because if you told the truth, many of you actually tend to see God as sour. Or morose or angry or irritated. A lot of things, but not happy. But the scripture says, 1 Timothy 1, verse 11, it talks about the glorious gospel of the happy God. Now, some of your translations don't say happy, they say blessed. But the Greek word is makarios, which means, if you look it up, the, the word blessed, the, in any Greek lexicon, just look it up, it will, the first definition is happy. I mean, when Jesus did the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, he was actually saying happy. 
Now, now, it's deeper than, remember, it's not the same kind of happiness that our world talks about that's temporary and based on circumstances. That's not what he's saying. It's something deeper than that. But it's kind of weird, but a lot of us, we don't really see God as happy. Like some of us, we, we think, man, God probably, it probably stinks to be God. Like, that's a lot of work. But God, do you know, God actually enjoys being God. Yeah. 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, God, the happy and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In the Old Testament, you're constantly seeing the joy in God. In Zephaniah 3, verse 14, uh, God speaks to the people of God, and he gives them this command, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. How are, how are God's people supposed to rejoice? With all their heart. And why would they do that? Verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. That's another word that has in its meaning, its range of meanings, happiness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I mean, did you ever picture God like that? So happy he sings about you. And you want to really, some of you, I'm not even going to go here because you just, some of y'all couldn't take it. It'd be like blowing your circuits. But the, the word there, rejoice over you in Hebrew, oftentimes in the Old Testament is translated dance. Okay. So I, I know this is hard for some of you, but, okay, another example. Jesus' parable of the talents. Remember, he's got three uh, servants. The master comes in with three servants. One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. The, one, the ones who get five and two, they go and double ma the master's money. And what does the master say when he comes back? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've, been, you've done well with a little. I'm going to put you in charge of many. And then he says, verse 21, come and share your master's happiness. Which suggests pretty clearly a couple of things. Number one, God is happy. Because you can't share something you don't have. See, I mentioned earlier about sharing cheesecake with you, but don't expect that when we get back in the, in the gym because I don't have a cheesecake. Unless one of y'all slip out right now and give me a cheesecake. Don't do it now, after service. You can't share what you don't have. How's God going to share happiness if he doesn't have it? I mean, that'd be like saying after our lunch today, hey, anybody want some ice cream? I don't, yeah, let's go get some ice cream. Let's go down to the Harley-Davidson shop. What? They sell motorcycles. Not, you, if you want ice cream, what do you do? You go to Comfy Cow. Where they sell ice Because you can't share what you don't have. So this verse is saying God is happy and he wants to share his happiness with us. Dallas Willard, in, in his book, uh, The Divine Conspiracy, talks about how, why it's so important what we believe about God and how we see God. And I just want to read a portion of it to you. He says, it is a great and important task to come to terms with what we really think when we think of God. We should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that he is full of joy. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyous being in the universe. It, it does make sense, right? The abundance of his love and generosity is inseparable from his infinite joy. All of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. 
He says, while I was teaching in South Africa some years ago, a young man named Matthew took me out to see the beaches near his home in Port Elizabeth. I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches, or so I thought. But when we came over the rise where the sea and the land opened up to us, I stood in stunned silence and then slowly walked toward the waves. Words cannot capture the view that confronted me. I saw space and light and texture and color and power that seemed hardly of this earth. Gradually, there crept into my mind the realization that God sees this all of the time. He sees it, experiences it, knows it from every possible point of view. This and billions of other scenes like and unlike it in this and billions of other worlds. Great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through his being. It is perhaps strange to say, but suddenly, I was extremely happy for God. And I thought I had some sense of what an infinitely joyous consciousness he is and of what it might have meant for him to look at his creation and say, very good. Number one, you're going to have joy coming out of you. You actually got to believe that God is joyful, that God's happy. Number two, we want to be happy. I mean, you, you know, come on. We, we, we know this intuitively. If you look inside yourself right now, you know you want to be happy. We have this drive in us for happiness. We have this deep longing for joy. And I think it's because we are made in the image of a happy, joyful God. So this passion, this longing, this desire in us for happiness is there because we're made in his image. The early church father, Augustine, in the 4th century wrote, Every man, whatsoever his condition, desires to be happy. And forgive the lack of inclusive language, this was a long time ago. Okay? 1,300 years after Augustine, there was Blaise Pascal, the mathematician and philosopher and Christian. He wrote this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. What are you saying? Even if someone who hangs themselves, they're trying to avoid pain. They're trying to get out of suffering. So even, even they are motivated to try to have happiness and a lack of pain. See, nobody here, nobody woke up this morning and said, boy, Lord, I hope today is awful. Lord, Jesus, I just pray in the name of Jesus that I will be thoroughly, fully depressed today. God, please let it be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. <laughs> nope, nobody prayed that this morning. When I was a kid, there was a television program on, and, and I, I don't remember anything but one song from the television program. Now, if so if this was a bad program, please forgive me. I really don't remember anything else, which probably means I shouldn't quote it, but I'm going to. Um, it was called Hee Haw. Okay, so I, I, can, I know some of y'all remember the TV show Hee Haw. Raise your hand if you remember the show Hee Haw. And uh, there was the, these guys, Buck Owens and Roy Clark, who sang, gloom, despair, and agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. (laughs) 
You know what the truth is? None of you woke up singing that song. Now, you may be singing it through the rest of the day because I just did that. Sadly, there's a lot of Christians, I think they must be singing that all the time. Nobody woke up this morning with that song in their heart because we want to be happy because God made us in his image to be that way. God said through the prophet Isaiah, 60, Isaiah 65, verse 18, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create for. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. You know what that text is saying? That God created us for joy. We're made in his image to reflect his fierce, unmitigated, unwearying joy. Paul said this in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord Always. Always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Paul was just wanted to say, I'm just going to repeat myself. That is my biblical precedent for repeating myself in a sermon. Because Paul did it. The Westminster Confession asked the question, what is the chief end of humanity? What is, what, what, why are we here? What's the purpose of being here? What is this all about? What is the chief end of humanity? And remember the answer? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. That's why we're on the planet. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Lewis Meads put it this way. To miss out on joy is to miss out on the reason for your existence. So here's the deal. God, God's happy. We want to be happy. We were made for that. And number three, sin sabotages happiness. See, when we don't go by God's plan and we don't find joy in God and his work, then sin and Satan's plan becomes more enticing. And you need to hear me. Sin will promise a happiness it cannot deliver. See, when you're not enjoying God, you're going to want that fullness because you're made for that fullness, for that happiness. And when you don't have that, you're going to look somewhere to find it. You're going to try to quench the thirst in your soul with the pleasures of this world. The great medieval philosopher Thomas Aquinas put it this way. He said, no one can live without delight, which is true. No, no one can live without delight, and that is why a man deprived of spiritual joy goes over to carnal pleasures. God said it this way through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's he saying? God's saying you did two things. You rejected me, the only one who can quench your thirst and give you real joy. And number two, you've pursued that joy. you tried to quench your thirst in something else that will never quench your thirst. See, since you're made in the image of God, the, the most joyful being in the universe, we're built to want to be joyful. And if we're not full of joy in God, we will try to find a substitute. And substitutes never fill the longing of your soul. They only addict you. They may give you, you know, Hebrews talks about there was, there's a pleasure in sin for a season. And then, and then what happens is it's tolerance. You're going to need more to get the same feeling. And it's never going to fill you up. It's never going to satisfy you. You name any substitute. It could be drugs. It could be approval, like you want people's approval. It could be career. It could be money, it could be possessions, fame, position, anything. You can take, and those are, you know, in, in and of themselves, those are good things. But when you take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing, make it the thing that you got to have to be okay, what you now have is no longer a good thing, it's an idol. 
And you're expecting that thing to be the thing that makes you okay. And you're asking that thing to give you meaning, significance, worth, value, to make you happy. And nothing and no one else other than God can do that. Everything else just addicts you. It doesn't quench the longing in your soul. But God says, I'm full of joy. In fact, I'm the most joyful being in the whole universe. And because I'm committed to your joy, I want you to know you got to find it in me. See, this is, and this was many years ago when this kind of hit me. Um, I, this was kind of a paradigm shift for me. But, the, you know, God is constantly talking about his glory and why you should glorify only him. And there's only one God, and he's constantly talking about that. God doesn't, God isn't concerned about his glory because he's so self-centered. God is concerned about his glory because he cares about your joy. As John Piper says, God's passion for his glory is the measure of his commitment to your joy. Think about that for a second. If God wasn't saying, you've got to come to me, then he wouldn't, he, it would be because he didn't care about your joy. But the only place you're going to find happiness is in him. So he says, you've got to come to me. So God is happy. He wants us to be happy. Sin sabotages happiness. And point number four. Okay, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're like, dude, four? Four? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is bonus point Sunday. I'm calling it. Bonus point Sunday. It's this, and you got to please get this point for it because this is the whole point of the message. Ultimate happiness is found in Jesus and only in Jesus. Nowhere else. And listen, I know what the world says. I know what social media says. I know what Hollywood says. I know what Washington D says. And I'm going to tell you, it's all a lie. Smoke and mirrors, deception left and right. I mean, you watch enough commercials and you're going to think that all you really need to be happy is a certain kind of jeans, a car that runs like this, a retirement account that has this much money. You got to have a haircut that looks like this, skin that looks like that, a body that looks like this, and then you'll be happy. And it's all a lie. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, the prince of preachers, he said, as there is the most heat nearest to the sun, so there is also the most happiness nearest to Christ. Ooh, you want to be happy? Get near Jesus. Get near Jesus. You know what the psalmist said? He said, in his presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. There was a guy who was a writer in the 20th century. You may have heard of him. His name was C.S. Lewis. He wrote this book that I may have quoted once or twice or 12 dozen times called Mere Christianity. Here's what he writes about this. He says, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, that is Adam and Eve, was the idea that they could be like God, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves and be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt, and it is a hopeless attempt, he says, has come nearly all that we call human history. The long, terrible story of humanity trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel for our spirits that we were designed to burn. He is the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. 
That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about him. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. You see what he's saying? He's saying happiness, true ultimate happiness is found in God. It comes in no other way. And I want to just say this. I want to remind us of this again. It is a result of the gospel. The good, and what is the gospel? It's the good news that Jesus is Lord, that he went to the cross, he took my sin upon himself. He died for me, he died as me, and in his death he conquered sin, death, and the devil. But he didn't stay dead, he rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, he's in charge now, and he sent his Holy Spirit. That is the story of the gospel. And what it means is this, that we are saved not because of our performance. Oh man, this is so good. This is, are you ready for this? I'm getting ready to crescendo here in a second. So I hope you are prepared, okay? Here's what the gospel means. We are not saved because of our performance. We're saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. And by putting our faith and trust in him, we are justified. That is, we are declared righteous. God said, you are righteous. We are accepted by God. We are approved by God. We have been adopted into his family, and we call God Abba. And that, my friends, cannot be taken from you no matter what. And if you just let that gospel in, I mean, truly let it in. And, and see, sometimes I think we don't have joy because we haven't really let the gospel in. We haven't really believed the gospel. Because if you really let the gospel in, you will, number one, you'll never look down on anybody ever again. How could I ever look down on anybody here? Because I got saved by grace. I was headed to hell. Going to crack hell wide open. And Jesus came and died on the cross and shed his blood for me. And now I'm in his family. How am I ever going to look down on you? Man, if you let the gospel in, you, you can't help but not look down on anybody. And let me tell you something. You also won't feel inferior to anybody. Why? Because you got saved by the same grace I did. So I have to feel inferior to you, and, and I, don't, I never have to be jealous of you ever again. Why? Well, well, because, I listen, I have an inheritance in God. I, I call him Abba. I, my Abba owns the place. And when I say the place, I mean the whole universe. So what could you possibly have I could be jealous of? Well, I got a nice car. A car? Come on. What, what? A what? I got Jesus. I'm supposed to be jealous of a car? No, I got something way better than that. See, if you let the gospel in and you allow yourself to be transformed by the gospel, then silly little things that would often steal your joy cannot steal your joy anymore. They can't steal your happiness. I'll do one illustration of that and then I'll be done. Unless I think of another. Um, do a thought experiment with me, okay? Just do this thought experiment. In, in this experiment... You are a billionaire. Yeah, you like this thought experiment, don't you? You're like, okay, I like where you're going with this. Okay. Not million with an M, billion with a B. In fact, you know this house down the road here, uh, down Brownsville Road, they're building? And somebody told me it was costing something like $14 million or something like that. Okay, that's just one of your houses. Okay, that, that's your house, and, and, and you, got, you got a flat in New York, and you got a house on the beach in, in the Florida Keys, and you got a house in the Canadian Rockies, and you got a place in London and Jerusalem. I mean, you're loaded. 
billionaire. And let's say you fly into Louisville and, you know, uh, your friend was supposed to pick you up, but they forgot. And so you got your stuff and, you know, normally you have, because you're a billionaire, you have, you know, a limo come pick you up, but you're in a hurry. So you just get a cab to take you over to this house over here. The cab drops you off. You give him the money. He gives you your change back and you put it in your pocket. You go into the house. Later, when you're getting ready for bed, you reach in your pocket and you count the money and you realize the cab driver shorted you a dollar. What? Shorted you a dollar. Now, remember, you're a billionaire. You're a billionaire. What are you going to do about the one dollar? You're going to get upset about it? You're going to start wringing your hands and going, oh, man, I'm going to be up all night thinking about that one dollar. That way he's got that one dollar. You're going to call the cops and say, I demand you find that cab driver and get my one dollar back. I, mean, I don't even know his name. I don't know the cab number, but I demand you go get my one dollar back. Would one dollar bother you? At all? You're a billionaire. Man, you wouldn't even care about one dollar. You might even you'd be like, what? I don't, what is one dollar? Let me tell you something. Since we've been adopted into the family of God and we call God Abba, we have an inheritance in God that would make a billion dollars look like chump change. Chump change. All right? So let's say this week somebody slighted you. Somebody didn't treat you like they should have tried, treated you. Maybe somebody criticized you and said, so, and look, that's a loss. Yeah, when you get criticized, that's a loss. But let me tell you something. It's a $1 loss. And you're a billionaire in God. What are you going to do? Are you going to wring your hands? Oh, they criticized me. They said something I didn't like. You know, I'm, I'm going to stay up all night long worried about this. I'm gonna... Come on. Come on, man. They, you ever seen that Monday Night Football? <laughs> Come on, man. That's how I feel. See, this is how the gospel produces joy in us. We have an inheritance in Christ, and I never, ever again, never, ever again have to be controlled by a $1 offense. Because I got something way back. I'm a billionaire. Well, I don't waste no time on $1. You want to be happy? I know you do. I might not even know you, but I know this about you. You want to be happy. You want joy? Then I would invite you to come to Jesus and allow the gospel to transform you. See, see some of you, you've known the Lord for a long time. Uh, but, but you've kind of gotten away in your mind and in your heart from the, and I just remind you, come back to the gospel today. Come back and let it so thoroughly transform you that you just can't help but be filled with joy.